Welcome to Man Up, a podcast by men, about men, and for men who want to be better fathers, husbands, leaders, and followers of Jesus. Are you ready? Man up. Yes, sir! Welcome, welcome, my friends. I'm your host, Jared Bowman, and this is Man Up your podcast with all the encouragement that you need to be a better father, husband, leader, and follower of Jesus. We're a band of brothers. We're soldiers. We're comrades in arms, and we fight side by side, shoulder to shoulder, hand over hand, and mile after mile until each has helped the others attain the high calling of Jesus. And today, we're joined by a new friend, a brother in Christ who is a preacher and a podcaster and whose name has been mentioned on this program several times by men like Keith Stonehart and Kenny Embry. But I finally had the opportunity to be on a podcast with Adam Shanks. It was Kenny Embry's Balancing the Christian Life, and we were talking about the fruit of the Spirit. I had a great time listening to Adam and Keith and BJ all interact with one another and talk about everything from how we can love each other better to the proper way to kill a spider with a lemon. I don't really know how that last one worked into the conversation, but we had a great time, and I knew that you were going to have a lot of good things to say to our audience. So, Adam, thanks for being here. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on the show. I've listened to Man Up and enjoyed the podcast. You definitely keep it lively and fun to listen to, but also challenging and particularly the focus on us as men being men, acting like men, being strong, being courageous. That's one of my, my older two, no, my younger two of my kids. We have so many kids. We have five kids and we have different sets of memory verses we do with different kids. But my 11-year-old and my 9-year-old are working on that passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 16 right now. And it is Oh, I love it. it, It's great. It's great to be reminded of that. And so I appreciate what you're doing here. Well, Adam, today we're going to talk about doing hard things. And you have a podcast called Preach Impediment, where you take words that are difficult for the average person to understand. A lot of times they're words whose meanings have changed or they're words that we don't use in everyday conversation. You try to bring them down out of the the stratosphere, so to speak, and really get them down into a way that we can think about the Bible in terms of what God is really trying to say to us. And it's that idea of the things that keep us from doing hard things that I really want to focus on today. And I was thinking about how because of your podcast, you're absolutely the right guy for this episode. But when you think about fatherhood, marriage, even kingdom work, what do you think are some of the more difficult challenges that we're facing today? Maybe some things that have changed generationally for Christians. Well, I I wish the answer would be as simple as listen to my podcast and understand things better. But I'll, I'll be honest. Now, they absolutely should listen to your podcast. Though. <laughs> well. I do hope people will, but I, I really think a lot of the difficulties and challenges we face right now stem less from a misunderstanding and more from a misapplication. We tend to okay. understand this is what good fatherhood looks like, or this is what being a husband should look like. It's not that we don't understand what else we should be doing. It's that oftentimes we fail to really apply or try to get to the 
the, the actual practice of doing those jobs. And so right. if I was really trying to sum it up, you know, one of the things you mentioned to me in preparing for this show was to look at Moses and Isaiah. And, and one of my favorite things to do is to go back and examine the way Moses is called by God there in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. There, mm-hmm. There's these, this series of excuses that Moses gives when God says, hey, Moses, you know, burning fiery bush, you've got this you know, a spectacular thing that Moses sees. Moses has to take off his shoes, which we still don't quite understand, but I love it because if I could get away with preaching shoeless, I would try to do it because I hate shoes. But, you know, here Moses is coming before God and God says, hey, I've got this job for you to do. I want you to do a very hard thing. I want you to go back Mm -hmm. into Egypt. I want you to confront people that you know, because Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household. So he would have known what is likely a new Pharaoh, maybe even grown up with the new Pharaoh. He, he would have had some exposure to the people there, and he's being asked to go back and represent God. And Moses gives a series of four excuses, and I like to, to sum them up a little bit differently than the way they are, maybe in the form of questions that we still ask today. You know, the first question he asks is, well, who am I? You know, this idea of, you know, who am I to go back and do this job? Why is this my responsibility? And you see there this sense of, I, I, you know, he doesn't believe in himself. We ask that question oftentimes. Well, who am I to take some big hard thing and apply it to my life? Who am I to do these jobs? That, that's one of the things we struggle with. I'm sure we'll come back and talk about each of these in a moment. But the second question Moses asks is, well, who are you? Which is a good follow-up question. That is something that you would expect to be asked. Again, I think we make certain assumptions when we read through our Bible that the people of Scripture had the same understanding of God that we have today upon the completion of Revelation. And they didn't. It's a legitimate question, Moses asked. Who are you? And then he asked, what if they don't believe me? And then he asked, what if I'm not good enough? And I love all four of those questions because I I think they are the same questions we ask whenever we're facing hard things. Take something like kingdom work. You and Mm -hmm. I are both involved in kingdom work. And honestly, any Christian should be involved in kingdom work. We've all been called to, to get out there and share the gospel. Well, if that's the case, you know, when we're told, get out there and share the gospel with your neighbor, why don't we do it? Well, honestly, the reason we don't do it is because we sit there and go, well, who am I? You know, they have life figured out just as well as I do. You know, I, I, I don't want to appear right. arrogant or like I'm better than them. And so who am I to really go about doing that? Or who are you? You know, we ask God that question too, but generally that comes in the form of, you know, they already know who God is. They already have some understanding because they, you know, I see them get dressed up and go somewhere on Sunday too. Or what if they don't believe me? You know, we'll ask that question and we'll go over there and it's just going to turn into some sort of religious argument because they're, they have their beliefs and I have my beliefs and, and, and that's going to be, Uh, just an argument. So I don't want to get involved in that. Or, 
this last question of what if I'm not good enough, that's probably the one most of us face. Of, yeah. Of, I don't know what to share with them. I, what if I say the wrong thing? I don't know where all those passages are in the Bible. And so we start coming up with these reasons as to why we're not good enough. But generally, the biggest problem <laughs> is courage. Well, and that was really kind of Moses's. I have a sermon that compares Moses and Isaiah in these moments. You know, Isaiah chapter 6, I'm not worthy. God says, who's going to go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And Moses says, I'm not worthy. Here am I, send Aaron. Yeah. I think we get that idea that somehow my personal feelings on my own worthlessness impact the obligation that I have to be a good father or a good husband or a good influence or leader in my congregation or a good kingdom worker. I mean, it, I think in our day and age, we have this idea that evangelist is, is a paid position that the congregation hires an evangelist to do evangelistic work. And while that is part of what I do, a preacher is more than just an evangelist. And in the at the end of the day, we should all be evangelistic in our day-to-day -day lives. But what you just said is brilliant. When you think about those excuses, it sort of looks like the parable of the feast over in Luke. Where, you, know, you got one man, and, and I love Luke's account because the third guy says, I have married a wife and I cannot come. <laughs> I mean, it, it, talk about something that keeps you from going to a party. I've married a wife. <laughs> but <laughs> my wife would beat me over the head so hard if I ever said I can't come because I've married a wife. She is the, the consummate party goer and party thrower, yeah. that she is the extrovert of extrovert, and she married a world-class introvert. Oh, so wow. <laughs> I often wonder if that third guy wasn't just an introvert. <laughs> but when you stop and you think about it, that Moses could see all those limitations, and he could see all of the things that he couldn't bring to the table. But where you started was so brilliant, it sent me down a rabbit hole for a second in Scripture. He's standing before God. I mean, he's standing before this burning bush that he turned aside because it was amazing that he could see the bush was on fire. Well, if there's a fire, I need to know. I'm a shepherd. I better go figure out what this fire is about. And as he gets closer, the fire is not burning the bush. It's just burning, but the bush beneath it is not being consumed. And he immediately starts thinking about his limitations. And you think about that, you think about... You know, Haggai chapter 2, when they're looking at the temple and the glory of the temple just isn't there, and God is telling them, look, you're not the one that puts glory in the temple. I'm the one that does glorious things with the temple, and I'm telling you the glory of the second temple is going to be greater than the glory of the first. And he's not talking about the physical beauty. He's talking about what he was going to do with that temple. And, of course, he's foreshadowing the temple as it exists today as the church, that when you look at Zechariah, that same priest, Zerubbabel, is mentioned in Zechariah in chapter 4. He says the lesson of the lampstand in Zechariah is, or Zerubbabel, needs to learn that it's not by his strength or might, but it's by my spirit that great things are going to be done. And oftentimes, it's our limitations that keep us from doing the thing that God has already empowered us to do that God has already given us the ability to do. And it's not just limitations in the moment. Sometimes it's not taking advantage of the gifts that God has given us to prepare for those moments. you got to get out of your own head, and you've got to get back to doing the thing that needs to be done. 
And sometimes what helps us with that is encouragement. It is our brothers in Christ. It is our wives. It is even our children. Sometimes when I'm having a frustrating day putting together a sermon or, or trying to deal with somebody and my little boy will walk up to me, he won't know the situation, but he'll just say, Daddy, you're a really good preacher. <laughs> and Funny how those are always perfectly give, timed, isn't it? It is. It, it's funny how those are always perfectly timed. And you know, maybe Moses just needed somebody to walk up to him at that instance. But in that vacuum, when we think that we're doing it alone, we think we're doing it by our power, that's where we come into that place of feeling like I'm not good enough, I'm not able enough, this is a very uncomfortable situation. We raise all of those objections that you were just talking about. And it, a lot of it comes from something that you listen to the program, so you know we talk a lot about this. A lot of this comes from the place of negative self-talk, mm-hmm. that we know what our limitations are. We know what our struggles with sin, we know our own struggles with sin. We know what the difficulties that we face in our day-to-day life are. And we, we sort of come to this conclusion of, well, how can God ever use me? And isn't that what Moses was essentially saying there? It wasn't just, hey, I really don't want to go back to Egypt because these people want to kill me. It was, I've already tried this and I messed up big time. How in the world can I ever get over what I've already tried to do in the previous chapter and failed at doing? Well, and that, again, that's where you see God at work and a lot of what happens here. You know, for instance, you mentioned the perfect timing of your son's comment. I've always found it fascinating that if you look in Exodus chapter 4, verse 14, he says, when Moses makes the excuse of, of well, I'm not good enough, and, you know, I'm not a good speaker, and God says, well, you know, isn't your brother Aaron? And also, he's on the way right now to meet you. Like, like <laughs> yeah. your brother's about to show up, and let's pull him into this. Like, it, God had it perfectly timed, exactly the way all of this was supposed to go. So as your audience probably knows by this point, I have a lisp. And so that, that no. for, for a long, <laughs> yep, uh, I always call myself the evangelist, not the evangelist. So, Stoneheart told me that. Right. So, that's, so I relate to Moses well. You know, I'm slow of tongue. Well, <laughs> welcome to my world. And, but again, it, it's one of those, I mean, I grew up, my father was a, was a preacher, I listened to him preach. I watched the way he was treated over the years. I watched the way all of those things kind of played out. I heard them talk about money struggles. I heard, you know, I I lived the life of of a preacher's kid. So I already didn't want right. to be a preacher. Add to that the fact that I have a lisp. I mean, this was just never in my wildest imaginations that this was going to be my future, that I get up multiple times a week and deliver sermons and talk about God's word and, and give public presentations. But it is something that, you know, became very obvious that this was the direction my life was going pretty early on in my marriage. You see that and you realize, you know, oftentimes when we are faced with doing hard things, we are also faced with having to come to terms with who we are. And that's the reason I love this series of questions that Moses asked in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, because 
God gives almost the exact opposite answer you would expect God to give to every single question he asks. If you think about it, he says, who am I? And God's answer is nobody. You are nobody. He does not give him a pep talk. I I think that's where we we lose sight of that. You know, our modern sensibility says, you know, that negative self-talk, what we've got to do is we've got to replace that with positive self-talk. We've got to think positively about ourselves. That's not God's approach here. God's approach is, okay, quit thinking about yourself at all and realize this is about me, not about you. You are nobody. Uh, He asked, who are you? And we commonly, our our Bible's commonly translated as I am who I am. I love the alternate translation of the Tetragrammaton there, which is I will be who I will be. You know what? Mm -hmm. So essentially the answer is who are you? That ain't your business. That that's God's answer there to him. That's not something you've got to be concerned about. You don't need to know who I am. You couldn't figure it out if I told you. (laughs) Say it again. Yeah. You couldn't figure it out if I told you. (laughs) That's right. You couldn't understand anyway. So just that you know. And and again, I will be. I I think that's not just a you know. We we kind of say that with a little bit of uh, sass and attitude of I will be who I will be. But I think it's really the sense of I will be who I need to be in order to get the job done. So there's that implication of I am everything you need. And, and, and we lose sight of that sometimes when we face doing hard things. We think it's about yeah. us, and we think it's about what we're capable of doing. And honestly, it's not about that. God's work can still get through that. Moses' third question, what if they don't believe me? God's answer, he gives them several miracles that, that can be done. Essentially, the answer, though, if, we're, if we put that into words is, that's not your problem. I expect mm-hmm. effort, and I'll provide the success. Uh, and, and we lose, again, we don't think about how true that is, but that is essentially what we're faced with whenever we're called to do hard things, you know, whether that be be a good husband, be a good father, be a good minister, be a good Christian. Mm-hmm. Our, our job is to trust that God will provide the success. We just have to provide That's the right. effort. You know, that's a pretty good synopsis of the first three or four chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians, yes. that you know, they're dividing over which teacher had the most glory, that, you know, I want to be of Paul, I want to be of Peter, I want to be of Apollos, I'm going to belong to Christ, but not in a Christ-like way. They were being like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and dividing themselves as if the minute differences in the way that Apollos taught and the way that Paul taught that were more effect than content were somehow creating these giant doctrinal disparities between the two. And Paul says that's not how the Word of God gets taught. It's not taught according to human wisdom. It's not taught according to human glory. That at the end of the day, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. So I'm using the gifts God gave me. Peter's using the gifts God gave him. That Apollos is using the gifts that God gave him. And what we're doing is we're assisting each other because we all know we have limitations, and at the end of the day, it's not three of us getting the work done, it's God making it glorious. And until we understand that, it is so easy to sort of pull those roadblocks out of the ether 
and say, well, here's a reason why I can't talk to this person because they're, they profess to be a member of the LGBTQ community, or here's this person that's divorced and remarried unscripturally, or here's this person that I know struggles with drinking and swearing and they would have to change their whole lives. There's not a single person that's come to Christ that hasn't put down some baggage and picked up a cross. And I don't care how closely you were raised to the church. Every one of us has put down something and picked up a cross because that's repentance. And what we forget is that repentance is a daily walk. It's not a one-time thing. It's something we do every single day. And we don't stagnate. We don't stay in the same place. We have to keep using the things that God has given us. I mean, the parable of the men and the talents. We have to keep using the things that God has given us and trusting that when we do it his way, he gives the increase, whether that's bearing fruit in the lives of our brethren or that is raising our children the way that they need to be raised or staying faithful in our covenants of marriage or out there evangelizing in the fields that are whitened for harvest. That in all of those instances... We do what God asks us to do, and when we have a good marriage or our kids get off the wrong path and onto the right path, or we see spiritual fruit beginning to bear itself in the lives of our brethren, it's not because I'm good at it. It's because God used the gift that he gave me and gave the increase. And when we have that focus on us, then the limitations are way too big and the, the opportunity is way too small. Well, and that's exactly, again, what you see with Moses. You know, that last question he asked is, what if I'm not good enough? You know, God's response is, I made you for this job. Like, you, you are right. perfectly suited and designed for this job. Now, I'll provide you some support, and he does that through Aaron, and even says, you know, essentially, he tells Moses, you'll be my mouthpiece, Aaron will be your mouthpiece, and we'll get the message out there. But one of my favorite passages to turn people to is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought you, up from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, there the idea of he gives us what we need to do the job he has called us to do, because ultimately it's all about Jesus receiving the glory and not about us. When our hard things become about us and our achievement, yeah, we're going to fail. We're going we're to fail big time because we are only so good. That's where the glory and the wisdom of the church comes into play. God never expected us Christians to go alone. Even Moses now, was not expected yeah. to go alone. That's right. Now, you mentioned Hebrews 13 a second ago, and, and 13 and 20 and following specifically, and I was thinking how that's also one of my favorite passages to go to to talk about this. And the conversation actually starts a little earlier with that quote from Deuteronomy 31 that you see in verse 5, where the Hebrew writer quotes God as saying, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? It spills right in the 118th Psalm there. He says, here's how you face these situations with confidence in a world that is going to persecute you, that's corrupting marriage, that is telling you that money is the answer to all your problems. You have to know that God makes you sufficient for what he's called you to do. Yep. And having that confidence, that's sort of the difference. And, and we kind of yawed into question number two, and that's, that's how we always do on this program, so that's great. 
But that's kind of the difference between Moses and Isaiah. They both said, hey, I'm inadequate for this thing that I'm seeing. Isaiah's like, okay, just kill me now. This is something nobody's ever supposed to see, particularly not me because I live among this terrible people and I feel tainted by them. And so Isaiah comes to this conclusion of, I just kill me now. I'm not worthy to be here. And God basically tells him, I'm not going to kill you. I've got a question for you. Who is going to be the person that speaks for me? I have a message. The people need to hear the message. And in Isaiah's day, that message is still, hey, you don't have to go into the captivity that I'm going to send you into, but you got to turn around right now. So who's going to take that message? And Isaiah responds a little differently. What does Isaiah say? I'm a man of unclean lips, and then after that, uh, after he gets cleaned, here am I, send me. That's right. Ready to go. Here am I, send me. So you got both sides of that. You got Moses' side that, okay, I am not the guy for this. And God said, okay, I've cleansed you. You are the guy for this. Here am I, send me. Many people today that feel like their shortcomings in areas of their life, I, I know as a parent, one of the best pieces of advice that somebody gave me years ago is be the hypocrite. Don't don't let your don't let your kids get away with the things that you can that you got away with kind of thing and and preach it from the housetops that they shouldn't. And when they call you a hypocrite, say yes, because I don't want you to go down the path that I went down. Yeah. But sometimes we let our inadequacies of our past failings keep us from being evangelistic. How do we get to that point? That Isaiah gets to where he goes, where he goes from woe is me to here am I send me. So one of the things I always try to remember is what Paul tells Timothy over in 1 Timothy chapter 1. There is a statement right. there that we forget about. It says, let's, let's find the, the verses here. Verse 8, but we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and males who have sex with males, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which is entrusted to me. I have to remember, particularly in in the area of evangelism, that the law Mm -hmm. has a purpose and an intention. And it is not Bible class. We love to study our Bibles, but if that's all we ever do with it, we have illegitimized the, the purpose of Scripture, which is to put it into the hands of the lawless, And I've got to remember that it was at one point put into my hands when I was lawless. Now, I might not have been a slave Mm -hmm. trader, as it mentions in that passage, or a murderer. But like you said, we've all failed. We've all had our moments of indiscretion. We've all felt those feelings of inadequacy. Well, in understanding that, you know, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we're told. And we all deserve death. You know, Romans 6, 23, that's, that's what you earn from sin. Well, if that's the case, mm-hmm. then I have to remember we're all inadequate. 
And so the only, I, I don't know that we should get over our feelings of inadequacy. Again, mm -hmm. that, that might be a contrarian view. I don't mean it to be that way. But you look at the way Paul looked at himself. He calls himself the chief of sinners, right? And he talked about how he's right. indebted to the gospel. And he feels inadequate for the job. That doesn't mean that he doesn't know and have confidence that he's going to heaven. And you never see him hesitating to deliver the law of God. He probably asked Christians consistently through the epistles, please pray for me that I'll have the courage to always open my mouth when the appropriate time is there to, to share the gospel with people. You know, that, that was the whole point he makes at the end of the armor of God passage in Ephesians chapter 6. Pray for me that I'll, I'll have the courage to say the things that need to be said. You know, that's what he tells the elders of Ephesus. You know, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And, and, and so those feelings of inadequacy, I don't know that they are a problem if, as long as they are not stopping us from doing the job. One of the big issues that we get into when we talk about adequacy, and, and I'm glad you went that way with it, because what we're not we're not trying to make people who are like us. We're trying to make disciples of Jesus. Yes. And that's what Paul says on so many occasions. I mean, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The, the, the strength to live in a situation, whether he was abased or abounding, didn't come from Paul being a really, really good person of integrity. He could do that because he held on to Jesus. That was going to be sufficient for him. You, you go back to the beginning of this passage in First Timothy that you referenced, or one of the early points he makes in it at least. In verse 5, he says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Well, I don't have a perfectly pure heart. I'd like to. My conscience isn't always perfectly good. My faith is not always as sincere as it needs to be. Sometimes I'm the guy on the water saying, Don't you care that I'm perishing out here? But I still go out there, and I want to. I, I want to improve in those areas. But I also know that when I teach, my instruction is not to make people like me; it's to make people who are like Christ, just like I'm trying to be like Christ. When our focus is, I'm not good enough, and I'm not smart enough, and I'm not capable enough, or powerful enough, and all the different answers that Moses gave to God. What you see is Moses didn't see one fundamental lesson, and we've already said it, and that is God is all of those things. Jesus is all of those things. I am deserving of death because just like you said, Romans six twenty three, the wages of sin the wages of sin is death. Romans three twenty three, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But then you also have verse twenty six in that same chapter that God demonstrates through Jesus that he is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. And so what I'm trying to do is not become what Jared thinks is the perfect approximation of a Christian. What I am trying to do is grow my faith every day in the confidence that Jesus gives me that overcomes the inadequacies that I have. Well, if you look further and, in that same chapter... Verse 12 uh -huh. goes back to this idea of, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. 
even though I was formerly right. a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And so again, Paul doesn't try to explain away his inadequacy. He recognizes that God chose him in spite of his inadequacy because God had big yeah. plans. Until we see that God's plan is greater than my sense of inadequacy, we become those guys in, that Jesus talks about in, in Luke who are excusing themselves from the dinner. It's not really always that we're saying we're inadequate. What we're saying is, I don't want to. Yeah. Like most of many, many times. Yeah. Many times our inadequacy is a sense of humility. Many times our inadequacy is trying to wrap humility around. I don't want to. Yeah. And I think too often that is the case in areas of evangelism because and I think it's Stoneheart that said this most recently, or it may have been Emerson who said it on the 50th episode. Evangelism is always messy. Yeah. When you bring the Bible to somebody and you're bringing Jesus to somebody, you're dropping a big old mess in their life. Not because Jesus is messy, but because like any big meteor that ever hits anything, it creates a huge upheaval. And if they get interested in this, they're going to find a thousand different excuses for why they shouldn't come to the gospel. But those who really, really want salvation and the comfort of knowing Jesus are willing to clean up all the mess that it makes in order to have him in their lives because what he's offering is better than what they're letting go of. Well, and I'll be honest, and I think often we make evangelism messy. We have a bad habit. Oh, yeah, and that, that's my point. Yeah. Well, and, and again, I'm, I'm not ahead. even saying, I, I think you have a, a really valid point there of whenever you are asking somebody to make that kind of broad sweeping change, there's going to be a lot of difficult moments ahead. And, and so that, that mm -hmm. becomes messy. But I think we as Christians make the process of those change more difficult than they have to be. You know, that, that is essentially yeah. the, the whole premise behind why I started preaching pediments was how many times have I gone out to try to teach somebody the truth and I'm using words they've never heard before. Things like <laughs> salvation. That is such a simple yeah. word to those of us who hear it. Or you take somebody from the religious world and they don't hear that word used correctly. They will use it to mean right. heaven. Well, that, that's not what the word salvation means. Salvation means to be saved from something or the state of being saved from something. And, and so they're different ideas. And so the whole premise behind preach impediments was let's boil these words down so that we can use the simple language to get the message across to people who need the simple language. I think we struggle yeah. because we get off of message. You know, honestly, the message of the gospel is about the simplest message you could possibly teach. And it is summed up in the scripture with four words. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are told... This sounds like a sermon it, idea. Kind well, of here we go. Four <laughs> words, real simple. It says, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf. Here's the gospel message. Be reconciled to God. That's it. 
That is the gospel message. It does not have to be more complicated than that. You can be reconciled to God. That is the message. That is all you have to share with people. Now, will there be other things involved with that? Like they need to recognize that they are not currently reconciled and in a good relationship with God? Sure. Will you need to talk about sin? Yes. Will you need to talk about what God has done in order to make, take care of our sins through sending Jesus to the cross and the story of redemption? Yes, all of that is involved. But you have to stay on the message, which is be reconciled to God. And when we find ourselves detouring or going other directions, we are stealing from the power of the gospel. We introduce the hurdles that are too big for them to cross by the way that we treat either a difficult subject that we don't want to broach or starting at a place that we know is going to create friction rather than starting with, okay, I need to tell you about Jesus who wants you to come to him. Yep. And oftentimes that message of be reconciled to God, come to Jesus, that is the essence of the gospel. The other thing we often do is we like to excuse the Bible because we recognize that there are parts of our understanding that are not socially acceptable mm -hmm. in, in our modern day culture. And so we like to lessen the effect or lessen the, the statements that call sins as an atrocious and horrible rebellion against God. We like to go, well, you know, but it's not that bad. And of course, we're all guilty. And so we like to make things a little simple and easier to swallow for people. Again, uh, I understand that that is a loving approach to people. Sure. But you can softball the gospel so much that nobody can ever catch it. And then that is not loving because what we've done is we have prevented them from truly making the change that God has called them to make. What we're trying to do is help them be reconciled to themselves in those cases. And, and that is not the gospel message. Jesus talks about being afraid of how people are going to receive the gospel. He specifically warns about how the, the rulers would receive it and how they may actually be put in some difficult circumstances because of that and how even their own families would receive them teaching the gospel. The reality is, is sometimes fear stops us from teaching, and it stops us from teaching because we don't really believe in the power of the gospel to reveal the righteousness of God. That Paul talks about Romans chapter 1, and when you stop and you think about that and you see that when we when we over soften the gospel, I mean, the reality is is I, I'm a sinner just like everybody else, and that's true. And people need to understand that I'm not coming from a place where I'm better than you. I'm coming from a place of I want you to have the forgiveness that I have. But I can excuse sin so much, or I can get in front of it another way and make the applications or the teachings against certain sins so vehement that I never talk about the rest of what the gospel says. Those are both ways that our fear of something gets in the way of teaching a very simple, unified gospel message. How do we get beyond that kind of fear? So this is a matter of opinion, but my approach has always been just keep it simple. Okay. We tend to not fear what we understand and what is simple. And 
I think anytime we go beyond simple, we've given ourselves unnecessary reasons to fear. I have learned with most people, if you can give them the gospel message in 30 minutes or less, they're willing to listen to it. Yeah. It, 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 <laughs> you know, they might not be willing to commit to six months worth of weekly studies or even one month of weekly studies, but they'll, they'll listen to you for 30 minutes. And, and that is, I think, key for us to try to get the gospel boiled down that far. I, it was years ago, and I believe it was Ralph Walker who said it. He had made the comment that the gospel message needs to be simple enough to draw on a napkin. And I set about, of, okay, I'm going to figure out how to do that. And I did. I sat down and I made a drawing that I can do on something as small as a napkin that will essentially tell the gospel story of the reason we need to be reconciled to God and how to be reconciled to God. And of course, obviously you throw some, some passages of scripture in there, uh, mm -hmm. but it is a, a very simple presentation of the scripture that I like to use with people. It is almost always the very first study I do with people because if I'm only going to get one chance to share the gospel with somebody, I want that to be the chance that I get, where they at least hear their need for Jesus and what God has done to make that, you know, to satisfy that need. I have a series, a book that I put together several years ago called Laying the Tracks, and it's basically different tracks and routes through the Bible, 26 different lessons that you can write out through your Bible where you just connect verse to verse that you can sit down and show people. But again, the whole purpose of that is keep it simple. Right. And honestly, that the advice I give when I do pre-marriage counseling, how do you grow a good relationship? Keep it simple. How do you be a good father? Keep it simple. It, it doesn't need to be complicated. It doesn't need to, you know, you don't need elaborate vacations and tons of money and big plans to be a good father. You need to go home and spend time with your kids to be right. a good father. You know, it, you don't need roses and jewelry and all sorts of gifts and, you know, those types of things, elaborate, you know, methods in order to keep, to, to let your wife know that you love her. You know, it, it, it can be simple. I think oftentimes we create fear because we make things too complicated. Yes. And, and that's where, you know, in both of our examples today of Moses and Isaiah, God doesn't make it hard. God never tells Moses, okay, here's a step-by-step -step plan written out on stone of exactly what you're going to do every day from now for the next year of your life in order to lead these people out of Egypt. He said, I have a message for you to deliver to Pharaoh, and I will help you every step of the way. The fear that we're trying to create in people is the fear of the Lord that is both terrifying in some passages like 2 Corinthians 5 and 11, or it is inspiring to come to the mountain, the mountain of God. But what we're trying to do is take fear away from the things that people are typically afraid of and put it in the proper place, and that is it's an awesome thing that the God that created heavens and earth is trying to rescue you from the situation that you created for yourself. Yeah. 
Well, and that's the reason I love Hebrews chapter 12, which talks about that, again, that mountain of God. Yeah. And it concludes there in verse 29 with, for our God is a consuming fire. He has to become the very priority, the very thing that consumes us. And that comes back to being reconciled to God message. Our natural inclination is to make it all about us. Even the the spiritual, moral teachings of Scripture are about you becoming a better you. The Mm -hmm. Bible's not about you becoming a better you. Like you said earlier, it's about you becoming like him. And we, we lose sight of that. Until we recognize that fear is not unhealthy. It is our response to fear that is unhealthy. We're going to continue to stumble over the things that God has asked us to do. And one of those areas where we stumble a lot lately as men is the area of leadership. Men are really reluctant today to step up and lead, particularly in fractured situations. In just about every situation you can imagine, there's going to be some kind of disparity between those who have wealth and those who don't, or those of of different races or male and female when it comes to the differences between that our society is foisted upon us between the sexes, or young and old, even, I mean, some of those dynamics even show up in leading our families, where the belief that someone who is not exactly like me doesn't understand me and therefore is incapable of leading me has caused a lot of men to become very timid in the application of leadership, that we don't lead the way that God wants us to. How do we cross those barriers without creating animosity? We blow a raspberry at society. That, that's that's <laughs> the way I do it. All right. Well, and seriously, it, I, I think it is one of the devil's greatest tactics to create division. Mm-hmm. And I think he often causes us to imagine division that is not only unnecessary, but is actually non-existent. We, when the division only exists because we believe the division is there. Right. Not because there's actually a division there. I mean, that's what he did in the garden, right? Is he tried to insert a division between Eve and God. That God has something he doesn't want you to have that would make you better, and he wants to reserve it for himself. Absolutely. And, and that's where I was doing some study in the book of Job just this morning. Uh, and again, the same, same idea with Job. You know, the, the devil caused all this trouble for Job right. over the course of you know, a, a very short period of time, it seems, the way it reads. But it is interesting, the people that he leaves in Job's life are his wife, who says, curse God and die, and his friends, who want to sit there and accuse him over the course of, of many days. And then some young blowhard who comes in there who is, who is trying to make some other accusations against Job. You know, the devil left the people in Job's life who are going to create division. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and again, that, that's part of the way that the devil worked. If I go back to the passage we referred to earlier, which is 2 Corinthians 5, Earlier, it says, verse 16, from now on, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Okay, so that, that's the first thing here. So when the world says there's division between men and women, we Christians don't recognize that. And when the world says there's a difference between those who have and those who don't, we don't see it that way. And when the world says that skin color or eye color or car color should cause you to like some people more than others, we don't see things that way. We don't look at things the way the world does. If I keep reading, 
Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away, and see, new things have come. You know, when we see that Christians are souls, we are saved in our spirit, that who we are is no longer concerned about the things of the world, but concerned about the things of God. Mm-hmm. Most of the rest of that stuff takes care of itself. Yeah. And, and again, God, God makes that so clear in the way that he provides us help, the way that he provided us to church. You know, we, we in the church have relationships that are designed to help us live more godly lives. Going back to Moses, God gave him Aaron to act like his own prophet. Miriam plays a role when you get later on into the story. Jethro, his father-in-law, plays a role. You read of Joshua later on playing a, an important role. So many people play these important roles in helping Moses do the hard thing God had called him to do. He wasn't asked to do it alone. He wasn't in any way expected to view himself as better than everybody else. He, he essentially just did the job God told him to do. He kept it simple. Yeah, you think about what you were just saying about the devil being the one that introduces division. You get to Galatians, and you've got these people that are introducing division between Jew and Gentile, and in Galatians 1, verse 8, if we enter an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. What he's really saying there is that the source of the division that they're experiencing, that's not from God. It's not because humans don't understand things properly and they just needed to be trained up a little. It's because the devil is at work. And the devil loves division. You look at the denominations that are in the world today Every denomination has been introduced by the devil. It is a departure from the Word of God. It is the devil trying to appease men and have them comfortable in their, in their relationship to God and feel this comfort without really coming away from their sin or without really coming into what God is calling them into. The devil loves division, and he is at work in our congregations, the devil introducing something into the equation where Paul said, I don't recognize Jew and Gentile. I don't recognize slave or free. I don't recognize male and female when it comes to who can come to Christ. What I recognize is, are they in Christ or are they not? That kind of division is something that will always be a hindrance to the gospel because it presumes before the invitation has gone out, that there is an objection that cannot be overcome. Yeah. Well, and again, it, it, you know, the whole point of, of the first half of the book of Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, it, you know, this idea of we're all in the same boat. Mm-hmm. None of us deserve the gospel. None of us. Right. None of us can ever say we're worthy of that. What we can say is we've been gifted something incredible Mm -hmm. and none of us deserve gifts any more than anybody else when i really have that humility then i have the humility to lead the way that god wants me to lead paul didn't excuse himself from leadership 
in the Corinthian letter, or from his apostleship in the Corinthian letter, because others were making it difficult and creating barriers. You know, what they did with what he was trying to teach them was going to determine how he would come to them and in what spirit he was going to come to them. But he never said, I just give up on this whole idea of being an apostle to you guys because you're too stubborn, you won't pay attention. Oftentimes, it is that sense of difficulty. It's hard to lead people because people are hard to lead that keeps men who are otherwise qualified from wanting to step up and become things like elders. I think it's one of the reasons why you see young people delaying things like marriage and having children. And it's this fear that there's going to be conflict and there's going to be confrontation and I'm just not ready for the conflict and the confrontation. But it's also easy to overcorrect the other way and to mistake our resolve to do things God's way, to mistake that kind of resolve for personal grievance. And so the last question, how do we do these hard things, admitting that they are hard, that they are that there are impediments to the work that we do? Some are introduced by us, some are introduced by other people, some are introduced by Satan. How do we do the hard things without losing the compassion that God calls us to have for others? The simple answer is just remember from where you were saved. I think sometimes that, that is the simplest answer. If I remember all the stupid things I used to do, it makes it a whole <laughs> lot easier for me to excuse the stupid things my children do. Sure. You know, as far as I know, and it might just be that I haven't caught them, they haven't done half of the stupid things combined that I did when I was a kid. <laughs> and, and that, it, but again, I, on, the other, on the flip side of that, I think there are times when, when I see them failing in the ways I used to fail, it makes me react even stronger against those things because yeah. I don't want them to fail in those ways. And I see them walking down road that I know what the end of that road looks like. And so yeah. I, I do think there's a sense in which you remember from, from where you've come. But ultimately, I think what it comes back to is we have to also remember that what other people do really doesn't have that big of a bearing on what I do. My job is not to go fix all the people. That's God's job. My job is to share what God can do with people. Right. And, and, and so again, if, if my message to the world, whether that be my wife or my children or my neighbor, or my coworker, or my fellow Christian with whom I share a pew, if my message to the world is be reconciled to God, then that becomes not about me, it becomes all about Him. Right. And it is easy to be compassionate toward people if all I'm trying to do is point them to God. Yeah. If you remember that, if you remember what your job is, which is be that ambassador for Christ, point people to Christ. Let people know about God. It's a lot easier to be compassionate with those people when they fail or when they don't measure up or when they're not meeting your standard, you know, whether that standard is God's standard or not. It, it, it's easier to have compassion in those cases. Well, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. That Again, I think when we make it about us and we make it about our standard, then it's always the sin that seems so far away from us or the things that we struggle to overcome that become the 
they become the things that we're harshest on. You never want to lose sight of the fact that God had compassion on you and that his, his message best affects people who are struggling in their lives, that have come to a difficult point and are struggling with sin. And the message of the gospel, if, when you look at who it affects, it affects people who are tender in the area of sin. And what we don't want to do is let our personal grievance with their sin or our personal maybe even disgust with a particular flavor of sin to ever mask the compassion of the gospel that you can be reconciled to Jesus. Yeah. Well, and ultimately, and this, this, this is the other piece we have to keep in our minds, is the whole point of the gospel is to display God's compassion. That is what the whole essence of the gospel is. So if ever we find ourselves being uncompassionate, then we are no longer walking in step with the gospel. Right. Well, that's all I had for you, buddy. I appreciate well, I, you. I appreciate you letting me on here. This, this has been fun. It was a lot of fun. I really appreciated you doing this. And this was kind of a tough subject, but I thought with your podcast and already talking about making hard things simple that you'd be the right guy for this. I got some other ideas for some shows I want to plug you in on. And and uh, I think one of them is going to have to involve Stoneheart. I've, I've, I feel like I, I use him too much, but he's always willing to come. I mean, not that it's too much for the audience. I just feel like I <laughs> I probably work him too much. I know. Hard. You don't want to take advantage. Yeah, uh, but he's just such a good guest. But I have a feeling you guys would be a lot of fun to have on on together talking about something. Get ready to laugh because, man, <laughs> that's what we always do together. <laughs> well, that's that's one of the things that we like to do on this program is it's not a lecture. It's it's a bunch of guys sitting around having coffee and talking about the way God wants us to live our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Well, appreciate the work you're doing, and uh, I, I really appreciate that You know, we have a lack of men being challenged to be men. Uh, in, in our world today. And I appreciate that you, you've kind of taken the reins on that and said, you know what, it, it's not okay for men to take a back seat or even a side seat in this work that God has given us to do. And that, that's a good thing. Keep that up. Well, thank you, buddy. Why don't you tell the audience where they can find your podcast, what days and, and where can they find it? Absolutely. Preachimpediments.com is the easiest way. You can also contact me through that. There's a, there's a link on there. It actually goes with, we, I have a separate website that's edenhollow.com. It's where I, you know, things that I've written and blog posts and all that are all on there. You can go to preachimpediments.com and find me. Look me up on Facebook. Give me a phone call. It's all there. You can find me. All right, buddy. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. And audience, be sure to check out Eden Hollow and Preach Impediments. I know Adam's doing a lot of good work with those things. And from all of us here at Man Up to all of you out there, as always, we want to say, have a good day, God bless, and man up. Dismissed!